Well, it turns out that our attempt to record yesterday's sermon fell short, but enough people have expressed uh, significant interest in the, what we covered that I'm going to try to record it uh, sitting now here in my living room. And I agree. I think this is a season where we are looking at God's Word for the critical foundational pieces on which we're going to build this spiritual community that we're calling The Journey. We have been, for the last two weeks, beginning with the verse that we believe God has given us as our theme verse, as our three priorities, as we begin this journey together. And that's Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thanksgiving. This walk, this living in Christ, is characterized by three things. The first, rooted in Christ, rooted in Him. And the word we're using to describe that priority is biblical, because Christ is what Scripture is all about, and Scripture is how Christ and God's plan for redemption and the whole of God's story is revealed to us. So the way we're going to be rooted in Christ is to be grounded, rooted in the Word of God. The second priority is strengthened in faith. And the word we're using to describe that is relational. Some might not be able to make that connection immediately. But when you look at Scripture, you see that everything that God's Word says about maturing in faith is in the context of spiritual community. We cannot possibly grow and become everything God wants us to be on our own. Not only do we need relationship to make life complete, but we need it to make ourselves complete. Jesus talked about the importance of relationships when he summarized the whole of life in his teaching by first of all going to the Old Testament and summarizing the Old Testament law. We had the great commandment, the second commandment, And then to his disciples, he gave what he called the new commandment. Each of those is framed around relationship. The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is an all-encompassing relationship. That's what love is about. It's a relational connection with our Heavenly Father that deepens as all of our being is engaged in this pursuit of relationship with him. The second commandment, love your neighbor, that's about how we connect with the world around us. We call them redemptive relationships. For too long, the church has engaged culture with everything we're against, as though somehow we have the right to play moral police on the culture around us. The only way we're going to change the world is to be incarnational, just like Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his son And that's what we're called to be. We're called to engage, to go into the world around us and in love, reveal the Father to them. Love your neighbor. And then in relation to the spiritual community, love one another, Jesus said. That's the new commandment for us. That's about spiritual community and a relationship of love where grace abounds. So think about it. The whole spiritual journey is about relationship. 
And that's what this second point is about. Strengthened in the faith out of spiritual community. The third area is overflowing with thankfulness. We're calling that missional. Grateful people are generous people. God gives us what he gives us, not so that we can just be blessed ourselves or that we can worship him with gratitude for what he's given. He gives it to us to bless others. We are his conduits. And it's that context of generosity that opens up the path for us to speak about God's ultimate generosity, which is forgiveness that he has made possible through the work of Christ. So those are the three priorities we're focusing on. But then we went back and realized that you can't live that if it's not built on the right foundation. And that's what the opening of this passage speaks about. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so then, it's a concluding statement, which means that what precedes this teaching leads up to this moment. And what precedes this teaching is about how we begin the journey with Christ. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, now walk in Him. So, here's the question. How did we receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Who did we receive? And how did that impact us? So that that becomes the basis for our continued journey in Him. So we find that by just simply going back and seeing Paul's teaching. And we introduced this passage last week. It's verses 15 through 20 of the first chapter of Colossians. For me, one of the most beautifully written, theologically significant teachings about Jesus in the whole of Scripture. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. It's a beautiful passage in English, but it's even more remarkable in its original language because this is a poem in the Hebrew style of poetry. We are seeing the very best of the Apostle Paul, the deep and profound theology of who Jesus is put in this beautiful artistic expression for God's glory. And so it is both the thinker Paul and the worshiper Paul who writes this for us. I wonder as you look at this passage, what main statement comes out? There's much said about Jesus here. But what would you say is the most important statement in this phrase? We look at it this way and we see many things listed of who Jesus is. He is, he is, he is. It's hard to pick any one item as the most important because they are all so beautiful and profound and mysterious. But yet when you look at it through the structure of the Hebrew poetry, it points to one overriding idea of Christ. 
And so what we're going to do right now is to break that down. We mentioned last week that there were two different stanzas. The first stanza speaks about Christ's supremacy over creation. He is Lord. The second stanza speaks about Christ's supremacy over the new creation. He is Christ, Savior. So in that sense, we already have the main idea of what Paul says when he says, just as you received Christ, Jesus, as Lord, walk in him. But there's so much more to be seen. When we think of poetry, we think of cadence, rhythm, and rhyme. But for the Hebrew, poetry was repetition, creative repetition, and symmetry. This is a poetry that works from the outside in, from the front and back, or the beginning and end of the poem, into the most significant statement. If we were to chart this, it would look something like this. There are two primary statements that are remarkably similar in the original language. The first is found in verses 15 and 16. And it literally is, He who is. And then the follow-up phrase, Because in Him. That exact same wording shows up at the end of the passage in verses 18 and 19. He who is, because in Him. And then both of those segments use two other very important phrases. The first one is, Firstborn. That's a pretty heavy one because it can confuse many people. Does firstborn mean born first? We're going to look more at that next week in detail when we see what is really meant by that passage. We just want to remind you at this point that it says all things were created by him and for him. So whatever that phrase firstborn means, it can't mean created because it simply says Everything, all things that were created, were created by him and for him. Therefore, he, Christ, who is the firstborn over creation, is himself uncreated. So we'll have to look at that and see exactly what Paul means. It helps us to see that he uses that exact same phrase in relation to the new creation. He is also the firstborn in relation to God's recreation or new creation in verses 18 and 19. The second phrase that is used is in heaven and on earth. And then in verses 18 and 19, it's reversed in earth and in heaven. Now, as we move towards the middle of the passage, we have two other statements. Verses 17 at the very beginning says, and he is. And in this case, it's before all things. In the beginning of verse 18, we move again towards the middle, and the symmetry is repeated. And he is before the body, the church, the head of the body. Both of those. So we start with the most significant statements in terms of theme being developed as we move towards the center with phrases that add to who he is, and then right in the very middle, we come to the really core statement of this verse, and that is this. In him, all things hold together. That's the primary truth in this poem that shouts out at us about who Christ is. Think about it. He is the glue. 
Everything exists in Him, is one way of describing it. Everything is held together by Him. Same idea. I love that picture. I love that the structure of the poem is like, like the wings of a butterfly moving towards this central truth. Christ is the, the glue to all of creation. He is the one who made all things, but also holds them together. He is the one that holds history together. Everything that precedes Christ looks forward to His coming. Everything that proceeds Christ looks back at His coming. His presence on earth, His work in history, His redemptive act on the cross holds all of history together. And in the same way, Christ holds our lives together, making good out of everything for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Oh, these last eight months for us have been a great lesson on that. You know, sometimes what God has to do is to take away everything He's given you, all of the blessings, in order for you to remember that He's the one that holds your life together, gives it meaning, gives it purpose, gives it structure, gives it stability, gives it grace. You know, I think it's so easy for us to, to go along in our Christian journey thinking that we're depending on God, grateful for all that He's given us, but really very subtly shifting our dependence from Him, from the provider to the provision. I'm so grateful for this season where He pulled away so many things so that at the bottom of it all I could be reminded that He is all we need. He's all we ever needed. He holds everything together. I love that. That's the primary idea that Paul is trying to help us understand. So as we look at this and we go back to that second chapter, verse 6, so that just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, live in Him. What do you think is the main idea as you think about that now? We received Him as Lord. He is the firstborn over creation. We received Him as Christ. He is the firstborn from among the dead. It, not just who it is that we receive. How is it that we receive Him? We receive Him as the one that is at the center of all that we are. So if we're going to be a church where Jesus builds His church, that has to be our central truth. Everything that we do is rooted in Christ. Listen to me. No one is going to run this church except Jesus. Jesus is the head of His church. He's the core of it. He's the foundation. Now let me just ask you a, a quick question. Why is this so important at this stage? You know, th these ideas were wrestled with 2,000 years ago. Christianity has come a long way. We have so many different resources. We've learned all the different ways that Scripture can be applied to make our life better to make our relationships better, to help us deal with our finances better. We've learned through the life of Jesus how to, how to live a life of love. You know, there's so much more that we can talk about that's legitimately rooted in the Bible or in, or in the teachings of the church. Why is this that important? Could, couldn't it really be that we just listen to the teachings of Jesus and follow Him that way? 
and are good to people and experience the fulfillment of that? Why is this so very important? All those other things, all those other activities, all that other teaching, that's all good. But look at those as the wings, the tips of the butterfly coming back towards the central main body. And we cannot be the church of Christ if we are not rooted in Christ and if He isn't the one, His person and His work that holds it all together. I want to show you a passage in Matthew 16. This is not Paul expressing this. He's simply bringing it to life for the church at Colossae because Jesus is the one that taught the importance of this. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 and we'll probably start reading at 13, but let me give you the background for this. This is a stage in Jesus' ministry where he still has got quite a bit of popularity and he has sent out his followers in pairs and they have gone out and ministered in his name. And they've come back with incredible stories of all that happened. And they're telling their stories. And at some point, not long after that, Jesus asked them this question. What are people saying about me? Now, if that was anybody else but Jesus, we'd be raising our eyebrow, right? It's like sort of the playwright saying, what, what do people think? So, so what are they saying about me? Sounds kind of narcissistic. It's the same kind of reaction I get when I tell people what my new personal email is. tsparling at me.com. <laughs> and they give me this look like, that's, that's pretty narcissistic, isn't it? I had one guy that actually thought that I had purchased me as a domain. Now, now for the record, that is the Mac user domain for email. So it's not mine. It wasn't even my idea. But it's sort of that kind of feeling. Hey, 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 what do people think about me? But this is Jesus saying it. And when we read it, we realize this is only the setup question. The most important question is the follow-up. Let's read it. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say that you are John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then this is the real question. And then he turns to his followers and he says, But what about you? Who do you say I am? And then Peter makes this significant declaration. Listen to it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Peter profess? You are Lord in Christ. Just as you have received Christ, Jesus as Lord, walk in Him. And so this is the very first profession of Jesus as Savior, which is Christ, and as Lord, divine, Son of the living God. It's really important that you understand that because that really sets up what Jesus says next. Verse 17, Jesus replied, and I can picture Jesus just so excited at this moment because this is the pivotal moment. He's, he's about to make a huge announcement. And this is the first passage where we hear the phrase, ecclesia, the church. So this is a pivotal defining moment in the ministry of Jesus and his long-term plans. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man 
but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So what Peter has to say at this point in his life, Simon, what Simon has to say is so important that Jesus is going to build his whole church on it. And it's so significant that Peter says this, that Jesus gives him a new nickname. Peter, Petros. Now, this is where some in the church have historically confused Peter's role in the ecclesia, in the church that Jesus is to build. In English, it says, you are Peter, which we know means stone or rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And so people have often confused it and thought that Peter is going to be the foundation for the church. So you, got, you have God the Father, you have Jesus Christ, and then you have Peter, and then you have the church built on him. But that's really not the meaning here. You see, in the Greek language, Jesus calls Peter Petros. It's the male version, and what it really means is rock. It could be a rock as small as something you hold in your hand, or a stone that you, that you skip across the water. It's really just more a nickname. It's almost like Rocky. Imagine that. That's sort of what, what he went from Simon to Rocky. Called that the rest of his life by his co-laborers. Then Jesus says, on this rock, Petros, the feminine form, I will build my church. And that means bedrock. In other words, you can't go any farther down to get stability if you're going to build a building. You get down to bedrock. That's what's going to be the stable force. So what Jesus is saying is that this teaching of who he is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, Christ Jesus, Lord, is the bedrock on which the church is going to be built. And Peter, the first one to profess Christ Jesus as Lord, becomes the prototype for all of those who will be stones used by God to build upon the living stone, the bedrock, which is Jesus Christ. Now, just to show you that Peter himself understood this, that Peter never was confused into thinking that somehow Jesus was going to build his church on Peter himself. We go to Peter's own writing in his first epistle. So we're going to be in 1 Peter, and we're going to read chapter 2 together. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 4. As you come to him, that's Christ, the living stone, bedrock, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, just as Peter, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. 
Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone and the stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious or wonderful light. Peter got it right from the beginning. He understood what it was. Jesus, Christ and Lord, is the foundation on which the church is built. Peter, like all others who profess Christ Jesus is Lord, become living stones, the stuff of which Jesus is building his church. How important is this declaration that Jesus is the Lord of creation and the Lord of the new creation? How important is that to the church? There is no church without it. You see, the real church is not an organization. The real church is an organism. It's what Jesus builds. So we, like everybody else, have put the name church in our organizational name, the Journey Community Church. And at some point, we're going to lay out a set of organizational structures. We will figure out how we're going to function. And I'm going to tell you this, it's going to be a lot simpler than the way most churches lay out their governance. Because what happens is churches often begin with structure and then try to do the spiritual. But the structure binds them to a certain way of going about making decisions and doing ministry. And the structure gets in the way often of what God intended to do. We're not going to make that mistake. We're not going to start with a set of bylaws. We're going to start with this book. And we're going to start doing church the way the early church did it. I'm pretty sure that nowhere where the church is mentioned in the New Testament was there a set of bylaws, a constitution, and a 501c3 corporation. Now, I think those things are important, but they have to serve the real body of Christ. We can't mistakenly think that because those things are in existence and because we put the name church on the title of the organization, that it actually is a church. Because the only real church is the organic, the organism, the spiritual organism of people everywhere who has professed Christ Jesus as Lord and are continuing to walk in Him, rooted in Christ, (laughs) strengthened in the faith, and overflowing with generosity. But that whole life, as wonderful as it sounds, is only possible if Christ is at the center of it, holding it all together. I love that. Love that thought. We want to be a church that Jesus is building. Otherwise, we will be no church at all. Christ, be beside me. Christ, be before me. Christ, be behind me. King of my heart. Christ, be within me. Christ, be below me. Christ, be above me. Never to part. Christ, 
on my right hand, Christ on my left hand, Christ all around me, Christ in my sleeping, Christ in my sitting, Christ in my rising, Christ be in all hearts thinking of me, Christ be on all tongues telling of me, Christ be the vision in eyes that see me, in ears that hear me, Christ ever be. Amen.